We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. Today is Sunday, October 11th in the year 1 AE. I'm Neil Bradley. With me is my co-host, the indefatigable Joe Quinn. Hi there. And joining us once more is Harrison Keeley. Hello. Co-host of The Truth Perspective on SOT Radio Network. This week we're going to be talking... Oh, oh yes, round of applause. Okay, keep it down there. Tamp it down there. Keep that audience quiet. This week, we're going to be talking about, you know what, I'm just going to read y'all the show blurb because it's awesome. So here we go. 99% of the people on this planet have an entirely false understanding of how the world really works. And therefore, they totally misunderstand the true meaning and significance of world events that transpire on the political, social, and environmental stages. This misunderstanding is the result of the deliberate dissemination of lies and propaganda by people in positions of power and the mainstream media that propagates these lies and propaganda. In the two weeks since Russia began bombing ISIS positions in Syria from its airbase in Latakia, the mainstream media, both in the West and in Russia, has crafted a narrative about why this is happening. The Western narrative is that Russia is attempting to support the Assad government The Russian perspective is that the West has not been effective in defeating the terror group and therefore the Russian military was required to get the job done. While both of these narratives describe some basic truths of the situation, the true implications and the background to all this is that Russia's moves in Syria are completely edited out and hidden from the global public. Suffice to say that the actions of the Russian government and military over the past few years have massive ramifications for the current world order. It is not an exaggeration to say that the world as it has been known for the past hundred years or so is on the brink of a profound change. So our discussion today, therefore, is about what that change will involve and how it will come about. I want to recommend that you take a minute to a world map. If there's no physical one to hand, open up a map of the world on another tab in your browser because we have one by our desk here and we often discuss world events and connect dots that way with the help of this map. So I know why that's useful. That's useful in terms of figuring out what's really going on behind the scenes because you can bet your ass or any other part of your body that the people who are plotting and planning uh, the future of this world, all referring to maps on a probably on a daily basis. So if they're doing it, you should be too, if you want to figure out what they're doing. Before we go there, though, Neil, you said something funny in your intro there. What, uh, what year is it? 1 AE? What does that mean? The year 1 AE, the first year after Empire. Uh, yes. After Empire. Last year was year zero. This is 1 AE. That sounds, that's refreshing. One AE after Empire. Well, 
We're not quite there yet, but <laughs> we can, you know, we can pretend to a certain extent. I think we're kind of within our rights to because as we've scoped out. Well, I'd say in the I'd, last week, I'd say it's fair enough to do that because if you look at the fall of previous empires, um, obviously there's a there's a point in time when it's clear that the empire is no more because mm-hmm. it's in ruins. But there is always a point, or very often you can look at the events preceding the complete collapse where it was obvious to everybody and see one event or a series of events yeah. that spelled, spelled the end. Uh-huh. And from there on, it was downhill. And I think we're at that point now. We've seen that that, that event or series of events happen. Uh, so it's, it's fair enough, I think, to uh, anticipate mm-hmm. the fall of empire. Partly, partly why I say that is, well, it's, it's partly in jest, but it's not so much... Uh, a, a throwaway thing because really what what we're going to see unfold from this point onwards is more of uh, it's going to be in, they're going to be inevitable consequences of what has already taken place really it's it's over for the US empire it's it's finished it, it can only mitigate or Stall. attempt to fight back or do desperate things, and there may be some big things, don't get me wrong, and they may be able to maintain the illusion of their power for some time still to come. But from what we're seeing, that's it. It's over. And we'll just give you, just start off on a quick, has anyone noticed that in the 11 days, today was the 12th day, in fact, 12 days of bombing in Syria, what has been the response of this gargantuan imperial structure? There have been no actual response. It's just more mealy mouth words. They, they cannot actually do anything. Well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an indication of just how much uh, the U.S. and satellites have been put in a in a position of, um, I suppose, of immobility, if you, if you want to describe it that way, um, that the response to Russia's move into Syria and the bombing in, in Syria is that they've been, they've resorted to uh, <laughs> they've resorted to well they've done this before but now it seems this is the only thing they can do which is uh, make stuff up in a very childish way about Russia uh, the most recent one um, amounting to more or less you know Russia's stupid you're stupid Russia that's a headline you no know, more or less because that's that was the the, the the message that they try to convey by spreading this ridiculous story that four of the Russia's cruise missiles that were fired from the Caspian Sea, from ships uh, in the Caspian Sea to into Syria, that they said the four of them crashed in Turkey on the way to Syria, or spent in Turkey and Iran on the way to Syria. Uh, now that was it was the Russians said that's complete utter nonsense. The Iranians said that was nonsense as well. They have no evidence that anything fell on their territory. So what that amounts to, if you if you look behind the, that headline and see that uh, see the message that's convey, that conveyed to people it's uh, Russia's stupid right it can't even fire uh, cruise missiles properly without having them fall in, 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 in Iran so that's the level of the um, discourse of, of the empire's response so the, the, this example of the empire striking back is to say Russia's a poopy head mm-hmm. so I mean that's desperation that's I mean that's indicative of how completely immobilized they have been in terms of any effective response that they're that they're resorting to Russia's stupid. Can, can we home in on that that particular thing, the mm. cruise missile strike? Because mm. we've noticed 
a couple of interesting things about it. Okay, it was like, wow, it was bold. It was uh, outrageously bold with respect to the world as we knew it before. But uh, and and the only response has been for CNN to go, we may have intelligence that you know it just completely yeah. fabricates something. They said we may that the, these four missiles may have dropped into Iran, and we don't know exactly where they hit, but there it was possible that there were civilian casualties. Mm-hmm. There were those three qualified statements from two anonymous, uh, or I think it was two anonymous U.S. officials, and that was it. Right, and of course uh, the Russians demanded proof. Yeah, if you've got the proof, like the Russians have said repeatedly, if you if you haven't noticed, the Russians have repeatedly been responding to U.S. allegations from back in Ukraine when supposedly Russian troops were invading Ukraine, and uh, the U.S. was accusing Russia, our Russian uh, rebels, Russian-supported rebels in eastern Ukraine, of shooting down MH17. They, they made all these allegations that were attempt, attempting to uh, slander and defame. Uh, Russia and Russia, the Russian government responded by saying, listen, mm-hmm. just show us the proof. You guys have satellites flying over the place all the time. Show us the satellite evidence of what you claim mm-hmm. to be true. Uh, and the, Rus- the Americans never did it. And they're doing the same thing again here. I mean, surely they could have uh, had, had a satellite tracking those um, the, the, the cruise missiles falling exactly. in Iran, but they didn't. So, uh, but, or, the, but, but the response from America when they're asked for proof is, uh, it's not usually an official response, but the uh, Talking heads, anonymous military uh, advisors or um, experts, etc., on uh, on American media will say, "Well, uh, they're not going to uh, give any give any provide any evidence of that type by satellite uh, pictures or surveillance because it would expose to our enemy Russia uh, our technology. It would show what we're capable of doing, which is such a pathetic excuse, you know." Um, Here's because what it's asking people to do is, it's basically saying we're going to continue to make allegations, spurious, hysterical allegations, mm-hmm. and then claim that they're true and claim that we have the evidence, but we're not going to show you. And how long can they get away with, well, get away with that? Because they can't. In that situation, you can't even once give good evidence because then people will expect it every time, every time right? yeah. and that means you can't make stuff up anymore. Okay, well, so apparently they can. <laughs> this is this is. Uh, he says, they say in return. What about he does, but and they don't do. What I'm getting at here is something uh, our own uh, Scotty Super Tech Super Techie pointed out, which is that uh, the specs of these cruise missiles fired from the Caspian sure would have been a surprise coming in this direction, mm-hmm. but they would have if not seen them preparing for launch would surely haven't seen them flying over Iran and Iraq on their way to Syria. Those things can only fly at a certain speed yes, before disintegrating. They must be below speed of sand. And we, we guesstimated it would take about an hour's flight with those cruise missiles to reach the targets in Syria. Where is all the super tech of the mighty U.S.? Whether space base, ground base, ship base, whatever. They could have mocked those things out of the sky. They didn't. And we've been wondering if part of the reason why Russia has been so bold in this, not just with the cruise missile strikes from the Caspian Sea, but generally in its behavior in Syria, is that they must have something else. This is, this is beyond just uh, airstrikes and cruise missile strikes. Well, you don't, you don't go in uh, and start uh, send your 
your planes and your military personnel flying in the, in the, in the skies of a, of a country like that that is effectively at war, uh, a war that has been uh, uh, provoked and has been carried on by America, the greatest military power in the world, without uh, having some confidence that you're going to be able to carry out these military uh, and the airstrikes with for more or less complete safety for your for your planes. You're not going to fly in there and risk take a risk that they're going to be shot down uh, by someone uh, somewhere. So uh, that's kind of what you're saying is that it seems that Russia has in in setting up this uh, this airstrike campaign in. Syria against the West, America and Saudi Arabia's terrorists. Um, it, it has been long in the planning. They've crossed all the I's, dotted all the T, all the way around, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's. And um, they've, they've acted, as we've seen in Syria, with a lot of confidence, uh, even to the point of um, those stuff in the news over, over this past 12 days where initially uh, the Russians, Russian jet fighters uh, intruded into uh, Turkish airspace. They yeah. did that not once, but twice. Uh, three times now. Well, well, they did it twice initially where they intruded into Turkish airspace uh-huh. and the Turks were, uh, got all, you know, chest puffed out. They shirt fronted. They shirt fronted the Americans, supposedly, uh, by saying this is unacceptable and if it happens again, uh, there could be serious consequences, blah, blah, blah. All bluff and bluster because what did Russia do after they got the supposed threats from Turkey about Russian planes entering the airspace. The third time it happened, it wasn't that they entered airspace. It was that there were four or more, maybe I think four or six or maybe more uh, F-16, Turkish Air Force mm-hmm. F-16s flying in, in Turkish air sports, airspace. And on the border with Syria. On the border with Syria. And a, a Russian MiG-29 in Syria uh, lit them up with its radar, which is basically the, the final step before you you fire missiles on Mm-hmm. On these Turkish planes, and that was for four that, minutes supposedly, right? And for four minutes, they lit up them with radar, which, like I said, was a pre- pre- uh, uh, preliminary maneuver before before you shoot them down. Uh, that's a very bold uh, and you might say arrogant response from Russia to these threats from Syria for invading the airspace from they Turkey. Go in, uh, to to Turkey. Uh, they basically target their planes in their own territory afterwards. Now that that all suggests a, a really high level of confidence. Yeah. In terms of what they're doing in Syria, and the question that Neil is asking is, what? How has Russia been able to um, mm-hmm. engineer this uh, confidence? And maybe engineer is is the right word because uh, what other technology is Russia using? I mean, we suspect that for a long time they have um, had anti-aircraft um, mm-hmm. defensive missiles in Syria, which has been there to prevent any kind of a NATO bombing campaign like the, the NATO uh, carried out against Libya and bombed Libya for 11 months. There's been no such bombing in, in Syria. And we assume that Russian anti-aircraft missiles are on the ground in Syria for quite a long time. Uh, but there's also the question of that you posed, Neil, about were they even able to see these Tomahawk cruise mm-hmm. missiles coming from the Caspian Sea, Russian missiles coming from the Caspian Sea across Iran, uh, across Iraq, and and through Syria? Well, so you think they'd have a, te- a yeah. satellite technology to Last see that. Last year, but... during the whole Ukraine thing that was going on, there were a few articles that came out uh, written by various people. A lot of them were really good on what a real 
Russian invasion of Ukraine would look like. Because, of course, every two, two or three days or more often, Kiev was saying, oh, Russia's invaded again. And of course, you know, Russia never did. And the point of all these articles was that if Russia really did invade, it would look a lot different. And there was one article in particular that was published. It was translated from Russian by some anonymous guy who claimed to be some military expert. And so he was giving his his scenario of what would happen. Now, I don't remember all the details. I'm not you know, up on all the technology or military terms and stuff like that. But one of the things he said was that when if Russia would invade, they do have a lot of technology that isn't publicly known. Mm-hmm. And this specifically, the ones I remember were jamming technology. And basically, the, the Russians would have the ability to essentially turn off anything in the area, any kind of communications, a lot of the actual hardware to just shut it off. Uh-huh. And they would walk in and just you know, destroy everything and mm-hmm. it would be a, a cakewalk. Yeah. So that's what this guy was describing. A lot of people were saying, oh, well, you know, it sounds pretty cool, but we don't know if it's true or not. But, it, you know, it's it very is. likely that this operation has at least temporarily blown a hole in what the U.S., what the empire can see. Mm-hmm. And that they literally had that moment in Team America World Police. <laughs> we have lost intelligence, I repeat. We have no intelligence. That actually happened at the Pentagon two weeks ago because they were going blind. And we have another clue from General Breedlove. You remember his statement? Mm-hmm. Russia, he said, is, this is just prior to the bombing campaign beginning. He was in Brussels and he said... Um, Germany. Germany. And he said, uh, if something's going on. The Russians are setting... They, they seem to be setting up some kind of area access denial system. Yeah. We don't know what, what for what purpose. Uh, so they had some clues, and I think well, they, they found out after the fact. I mean, that that uh-huh. suggests uh, what he actually said was um, um, that <clears throat> they have very sophisticated air defense capabilities, anti-access area denial, which is uh, military speak for basically anti-aircraft and uh, possibly jamming technology so that basically no enemy planes can would even risk or dare to try and come in because they would be, would be blind. Not only would they be blind in terms of uh, their nav- maybe even their navigation abilities and their radar and all that kind of stuff, but they would also be extremely likely of being shot down by a missile mm-hmm. from the ground. Um, so he, what else did he say? Um, yeah, he said that, um, that these were... Uh, this was about something else, not about uh, fighting the Islamic State. Mm-hmm. That's partially true, because uh, obviously uh, Russia's intentions in, in Syria are part of a much broader plan, it seems, that is not limited uh, to the Islamic State. The Islamic State, these uh, Western-backed terrorists are only um, the first step in removing them from the equation to then follow on um, on the ne- in the next step. But the other thing about, I mean, there's one thing that to jam the radar or jam the, um, or to dis- disrupt the electronics of uh, a ship or a, uh, an airplane, etc. Um, they can do that from the ground, targeting airplanes in the sky or, or over a particular area. But there's another, the other aspect is the satellite um, equation where the US, the NSA has satellites that uh, for a long time now are able to see right down to like, you know, a few feet square on the ground and high resolution. Well, I think it's I mean, more than that. I think they can... A few inches, well, maybe. Yeah, they can at least read license plates, if right. not smaller. From space. Yeah, from space. And that's been there for a long time. Um, 
So, uh, and it's funny because in doing a bit of research, I came across an article from a few years ago uh, on 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 a news website that was talking about the Russians developing a new type of laser. Well, it's not really a new type of laser. It's basically a high-powered laser of the type that the Americans have been attempting to militarize so they can shoot down planes from this land ground-based uh, laser system that just shoots a high-energy laser laser at a plane and and you know, burns it, disables it. Um, the Russians have been developing their own, it seems, but with the intent not of shooting down planes or shooting down anything, but for, for targeting uh, satellites uh, to blind them effectively. So it doesn't destroy the satellite, doesn't affect the satellite. Mm. It basically just shoots uh, a high-energy laser up into space, targeting and tracking a satellite and preventing the satellite from seeing anything for the time that the laser mm. is on it, you know. So there's all sorts of possibilities. Obviously, obviously we're speculating here, but uh, it's been said by more than one uh, military expert and, and military personnel in the West that for uh, the Russians, the Russian military, or the Russian government, for, the Russian military's forte, or one of their fortes, has been in the area of uh, electronic warfare. Mm-hmm. That that is where they have uh, put a lot of research and effort and money into. Uh, going back even to the time yeah, of the Soviets yeah, in the Cold War, and it's what's a tradition for them basically. And uh, from what they've been saying, of course, the West never likes to admit that uh, anybody is better than it. But when you see them going almost to that point of saying that they're concerned that they might be yeah. surpassed in this particular technology, they've said that about Russia many times in recent years, uh, which gives you an indication that they're probably. When you hear them saying that almost saying that they're better than us, it means that they're crapping their pants because they're way better than us because they'll uh-huh. never admit it. So it's possible that Russia has all sorts of technological gadgetry that the, the U.S. is only finding out about in real time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there was a statement that came out in the last week or so. I don't have the source on me right now, but it was, I believe it was from uh, a U.S. intelligence source, and this was given to a newswire, that he was saying essentially that the the Americans were caught completely off guard with their pants down for this whole beginning of this these airstrikes and that they were totally blind. They had no idea what was going on this whole time and they were kind of complaining about it. And, uh, you know, all we got was this warning from the general in, in Baghdad and then it was just like we had no idea. Mm-hmm. They were just caught completely off guard. The thing, but when you say completely caught completely yeah. off guard, that's been yes and no. Well, that's been the dominant narrative. Yeah. Uh, that's been across the board. Even the Americans themselves have been, in one way or another, in in, in not so many words, admitting yeah. that they were caught. That the, the the word they use is surprise. We were surprised that this happened. We were surprised this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, but no, because really. The super the, the the super strategist types with the the ultimate vision of all things going on via the Pentagon and whatever DARPA projects they have up and running, you know, full spectrum of total information awareness. These people well will see everything more or less in real time. Well, so they may, well maybe, but but given the, the technology that we just talked about, yes, they haven't seen everything. It seems to me that it's not necessary. Yeah, it's not necessarily that America doesn't have the capability to know what's going on or didn't have the capability to not be surprised by what Russia has done. It's just that they didn't use it. And why didn't they use it? Because 
for years, and I'm talking here about decades, going back 60, 70 years, there's a long history there where the U.S. has been allowed to or has, has grown in confidence and complacency that it is king of the world, that it can do whatever it wants, wherever it wants, with impunity, completely unimpeded. If anybody tries to raise a hand or protest, it gets slapped down and they're left in no doubt that they better not do that again. And the, America has crafted or created this, this position for itself as the world hegemon and they've become very complacent in that, in that position. And the other aspect of this is that the Russians have been watching all this happen, mm-hmm. know that this was happening, know that the Americans were really cocksure about everything. They are, they rule the roost. And the, the Russian strategy appears to have been, well, let them, let them go, give them more rope, give them lots more, while we quietly, uh, in the background, build up our military and, and plot and plan and scheme, uh, we will uh, dissimulate on the international stage and do our best to cover up the fact that we have any intentions of doing anything at all. We'll even join in the war on terror. We'll talk all the time about our American partners, how we want to do business, how we're just this innocent broker here, and can't we all live in peace? And everybody loved those words coming from Putin over the past few years. Everybody's like, yeah, Putin, why can't we have a, a world that Putin wants? You know, he's just talking about a multipolar world. You know, it, should, it shouldn't be this way. You shouldn't have the Amer- America dominating everything. And everybody thought that was great. Yeah, it is. But the Russians aren't stupid enough to think, having observed America for the past 60, 70 years, to think that those words alone, appealing to them with words, is going to change the nature of this beast. Mm-hmm. Behind all of those words, they were getting serious about what to do and how to take down this beast. And they were documenting its every move, its every action, and like I said, the nature of it. It's every weakness. And once, you, once you've itemized all of those details and you've gone over it repeatedly and made sure you haven't missed even the smallest detail, once you've got it all down, the, the, the schematics of how America works, then you're in a position to say, okay, next step, we spent the next two years identifying all the weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And then we develop a plan based on that. For anyone who's read any of Castaneda, this is st- stalking the tyrant right. on a massive scale. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this isn't a petty tyrant. This is a tyrant. This is a global level. Yeah. Stuff. What are they... Whether they read Castaneda or not, not besides the point. They got the principle. They got the point. Watch how they operate. Be nice to them. 9-11 happened. Putin, first one to call the White House. They're saying, I'm really, really sorry what happened. That was awful. Listen, my advisors are telling me different. But I want to say, if you want to go into Afghanistan, no problem. You come straight to Russia. We'll we'll give you supply routes into Afghanistan. No problem. (laughs) Iraq? Well, I'm not so sure. That came later. But initially, it was totally with the U.S., Right, no problem. And yeah, the the, re, the reference to uh, Castaneda, this is Carlos Castaneda, Don Juan, uh, and his books written about uh, Don Juan. He he mentions the idea of stalking, where you, you have this petty tyrant in your life. He talks about it in the book as petty tyrants. These people are really annoy you. They're doing all sorts of nasty things to you. They're making your life miserable, but you don't respond. Uh, you don't lash out in anger. What you do is you use the five attributes of what he calls warriorship, which is control discipline, forbearance, timing, and will. Now, it seems to me that Russia has used all of those five in, in, in getting, them, getting Russia to the point where it could take this action in, in Syria because uh, this is one thing that people have wondered. Some people have been questioning 
well, why did Russia wait so long? It's been four years of this bloody civil war backed and sponsored by the U.S. where they send these, and Saudi Arabia, and with the help of Turkey where they send these jihadis, these basically not job so-called Islamic, Islamic mercenaries into uh, Syria and, and tear the country apart. And why did Russia sit back and watch all of that happening? Well, timing mm-hmm. is, is very key. I mean, you know, we'd all like to live in an ideal world where this kind of like savior would ride in on a, on a white horse and slay all the bad guys and make everything wonderful. But, but it doesn't work that way when you're in a position, the position of Russia, where you have a lot of catching up to do and you're faced with this big monstrous tyrant that is just paging around the world and thinks it controls everything. It's a serious danger. You, you don't just walk up that and slap it in the face and say, you go home, you're a bad boy. You have to take very specific and very detailed measures yeah. to, 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 to even get it into a position where you can have some success at taking it down. Here's an example of why timing was crucial. If Russia had done this <clears throat> in 2012, even 2013, before ISIS blew up in, in all of our faces and was literally shoved in our faces by the Western media as the epitome of evil, before that, it was an internal civil war, remember, and the FSA was just a free Syrian army in a spontaneous uprising. Imagine if he'd gone in then. Mm-hmm. That would not have been seen as a good thing. Then right. the, oh, he's just propping up Assad would have had weight. Right. But you now no you do it and everyone's like, oh, thank God, someone's yeah. getting rid of that yeah. evil. Yeah. They waited for the time, and obviously they can't. The Russians weren't able to predict everything that happened. They watched things happening, and they waited for their time. And it seems that the last uh, year or two of ISIS terrifying the the West and being shoved in everybody's faces, like you said, where there's this horrible terrorist group, that was the moment where they said, "Okay, now we can move in," because, like you said beforehand, uh, America had established the dominant narrative of. This was ordinary Syrian mm-hmm. people, people fighting against their evil dictator, and everybody, most people in the West, believe that. Like I said, if Russia had been in then, they would have been seen as aiding an evil dictator. But now they're not because they're saying we're going in to, to attack and destroy these evil terrorists that the West has shoved in your face for two years and you're all clamoring for somebody to do something about them. And that's why Russia is insisting we are fighting ISIS. I mean, it's very clear <clears throat> that they're using that narrative against America. And America made a big mistake by the West made a big mistake by making all these or, or having someone make all these ridiculous head chopping videos and shoving them onto every single newspaper in the West and terrifying old grannies in London, you know, because uh, that was used, like I said, by Russia to say, okay, well, we're going to deal with these people and we can move in now. Uh, we have a call. Do we want, uh, yeah, let's take a call right now, no? Sure. This is uh, Kent. Hi, Kent. Hi. Yeah, you know, yeah you're talking Very about good. timing. Well, what really occurs to me is... Um, that um, this Russian move comes only after the Iran deal, or the Iran mm-hmm. peace deal, whatever it was, and that mm-hmm. uh, I had been reading leading up to that that uh, somehow another one str- one uh, objective of that would be to break the uh, alliance between Iran and Syria, and therefore you know allow that that um, connection to crumble. So just as Iran sort of. Uh, um, opens up and comes under maybe more Western influence or under control, mm-hmm. yeah. Russia just jumps right in there. So I think right. that the time there. And you're talking about how how all of a sudden this springs up. Well, I'm reading something from your one of your programs, one of your articles just last night. Russia in the news, 10 days that shook the world, and there's a link in there to a, they're talking about the quality of a satellite surveillance, and there's a link to a, Stratfor, and it says it's dated. Now it says confirming Russia's expanded presence in Syria 
and it's dated September 10th. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, so there's a case where, you know, all of a sudden it hits the news and know what's going on, but it, it's been going, you know, it's been building up to the point. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, and of course, it can be in strat for and it doesn't mean that the people at the top actually read it, you know, all that goes. But, right. On the Iran thing, uh, the only thing I say on the Iran thing is kind of backing up what you said, which is that you know the Americans are desperate when they're making peace with somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and um, so it, 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 um, and then uh, also uh, there's something. And there's an article. In, uh, there's an article um, also in yesterday's uh, sought about uh, JFK, and Politico came out with some some garbage about uh, all McCone's, uh, the biographer of McCone, you know, the CIA director and the CIA mm-hmm. historian, and that uh, linked it. Uh, Suggested a link that it was re- that McCone had covered up the um, the, the CIA's attempts to murder Castro for fear that it would cast you know insinuate that it might have been a retaliatory act by Cuba, and this comes out just uh, just as normalization of relations with Cuba. And now they now they dump this garbage that you know hmm. pointing the JFK thing at Cuba. So it just goes on and on with this type of garbage. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Thanks, Ken, for your call. Um, okay. Take care. I'm gl- bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I'm glad he brought up Iran because Iran's important in this Eurasia game. It's not a game, but that's how it's been thought of for some time, the great game. Um, this goes to the heart of your article, Joe, on what's at root in the competition over Syria. Because this was my question. Why Syria? Why is it so important to the West that they would make makes a series of mistakes leading up to a catastrophic mistake and for Russia to draw a line in that country and it relates to pipeline deals mm-hmm. and also to Iran and it's sort of peace deal with Iran between the West and Iran so what's going on here what, what, the, the Iran for example was that a win for Russia or a win for the US because they were both involved in settling that deal yeah um I would say, like like I said before, the U.S. to uh, to drop sanctions. It's you know seven, eight year long sanctions on this is U.S. and, and Europe uh, sanctions on Iran. Um, it suggests that uh, the that basically something was going wrong that it was forced into that position because the U.S. doesn't make d- drop sanctions against a country unless it is in a in a position where it's going to get everything it wants in return for dropping those sanctions. The fact that Russia... Or so uh, it thinks. Or, yeah, well, that's only the time, that's when it does. Uh, but in this case, the fact that Russia was um, a broker and was happy with the deal as well suggests that things have not gone well in that respect for, for the U.S. The U.S. didn't get everything that it wanted or even anything necessarily that it wanted. Um, I think they <clears throat> they realized that the the... the the, politici- the, the, the politicking that, that Russia had been engaged in over the past several years with uh, with various countries uh, around the world, including Iran. Uh, of course, Iran's a kind of relatively long-term ally of uh, of Russia. But um, I think the U.S., the West, uh, the empire saw uh, that if they continued this belligerent attitude approach to Iran, that this is simply going to uh, help the Russians. Mm-hmm. Because it was just going to push, continue to push Iran into the arms of, of Russia and 
and, and, and China and, and China and strengthen their kind of ties. So it said that the, the 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 best thing we can do here is to try and court them and try and strike a deal with them because to a certain extent they figure that the Iranians are open to negotiations. Um, the whole thing about sanctions against Iran has largely been the whole nuclear thing has been a ruse, like everything else. It's kind of like um, you know, it's almost like the the commie threat or the Muslim terror threat. Iran going to nuke someone, we can't let them have a bomb. It's a complete not a ruse, and that that type of a ruse is what is what has been fed to people for so long. It's it's all people ever get about what's going on in the world. Uh, behind the scenes, the main uh, goal of these sanctions, and they were quite effective, was to prevent Iran developing its natural its its oil and its gas. Uh, and doing the deals that it would naturally do, which is with its neighbors, uh, primarily China. China is very interested in more more access to to gas and oil. It wants to kind of diversify. It doesn't necessarily want to be completely uh, reliant on Russia, not for any negative reasons, but you know it's good to have different flows mm-hmm. of, of of resources. Um, so Iran would be a natural. It's not it's not that big a a problem or not too expensive to run pipelines from Iran. Um, into China. But if you notice again, and here is why we recommend that you have a map open, if you look at Iran and look to the look uh, to where the likely pipeline would go uh, to China, it would go through Afghanistan. Because if you notice also Afghanistan has a border, or a small border, but a border with China. Uh, so, and this, is, this gets back to, this gets into why the US is even in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you throw the whole war and terror nonsense out the window, why was Afghanistan the first country that the U.S. invaded after 9/11? Why did they go there, and why are they still there? And why did the uh, the, the NATO chief recently say that they're going to? They were planning meant to leave next year, take U.S. troops, NATO slash mostly U.S. troops out of Afghanistan uh, next year after 16 years of occupation. But now he said, no, I think we're going to stay another five years. Um, why are they even there in the first place? So a 21-year occupation of the country for what? For, for for terrorists, do you think? I mean, this is the narrative of, of America. Older than that. I know. The Taliban in the 90s came out of the Mujahideen, which well, the yeah. Soviets went in in the 80s of to course. try and get rid of. Right. It's it's half a century old. Right. But in this incarnation, they've been there. They're planning to have been there to be there for 21 years. And uh, the only way you can explain it is to go back to the official narrative after 9-11, which is we're fighting terrorism. So you're telling me that the U.S. has is occupying Afghanistan for 21 years because it's worried about some jumped-up Muslims, as uh, Brzezinski once said, or stirred-up Muslims? Really? I mean, you have to really believe the American dream to think that uh, America's altruism extends to spending 21 years in a foreign country uh, just to make sure that those crazy Muslims don't get any crazier, you know? Obviously, there's a whole other reality behind this, and this is the topic of the show, which is to pull away that... uh, that, that veil uh, that has been shoved in people's faces for so long, and we're, here we're talking about, you know, probably the last hundred years, really, and look at what's really going on. And it's, it's very practical. It makes far more, uh, far more sense when you look at what's really going on. And like you're just saying, uh, Iran, Iran has a lot of oil, Iran has a lot of gas. It, uh, would be, it would naturally supply China. It would be a strategic coup for China to strike. China already has made deals to explore for oil and gas in Iran. Oh, sorry, in Afghanistan. That's why America is there, because it saw Afghanistan as um, potentially 
you know, Afghanistan's natural resources would be... Well, being in Afghanistan means you come directly between the resource-rich Middle East and right. the resource-impoverished China, which right. needs the damn exactly. energy resources. So that's, that's why they're there. It's, their, it's in their strategic, strategic interest. And, and the whole point of uh, what the U.S. has done over the past, you know, 50, 60 years is to control, largely control the oil and gas uh, uh, supplies in the world, and it's not just about getting them for itself. Of course. No, it's about making sure that those pipelines go in a certain direction. Right, and who, it's also making sure that, that America indirectly controls the flow of gas to yeah. other people. America isn't just, I mean, the narrative after 9-11 was that we need to, when, when it leaked out, it was we're, we're in Iraq, we went to Iraq to secure vital natural resources, vital oil resources for the American economy, as in if 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 Iraq isn't if Iraq if Iraq goes the way of crazy Muslims who are against America, they'll stop allowing us to get access to their oil, and then America will starve, you know, because America sucks up loads of oil every day. But that's not the point. The point is that's only uh, that's partially the a truth. Sm- a a yeah. smaller part of the the reason, the major part of the reason, is to control uh, who else gets that oil, who else gets that gas, uh, because if you control the spigot uh, on the gas and pipelines to, for example, Europe, well, then you can put a lot of pressure on Europe by hinting that, hey, maybe you all might uh, run out of oil and gas this winter. You wouldn't like that, would you? you don't, how are you going to do that? Well, our friends in Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Syria, wherever, they'll all do whatever we want them to do. That's the implication. So America needs to control all these countries that have these resources that the whole world needs to be to, to function, all of these economies, industrial industrial nations need oil and gas to function, and you can stop them functioning by controlling the oil and gas supply to them. So that's largely what it's about. And they're countering the natural tendency of countries in the Middle East, in Central Asia, and all the way to China and north to Russia, to naturally go to each other. Hey, you know what? You've got all this oil and gas. We've got all this high tech. Or we over here have massive demand, and we've got the money saved up from building all those uh, consumer products for the West all these years. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's deal. And so they're all like, "Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay, let, let's deal." But then, boom, something intervenes. Oh, sorry, that pipeline's not going to happen because now that that region that's vital to connect this gas pipeline is now a war zone. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. And these war zones and conflicts keep happening in places conveniently that sabotage the normal tendency of economic, social, etc. integration between the vast landmass of Eurasia. Mm-hmm. It's, um... And it's being coordinated from a place that's located all the way over there, practically on an island away and offshore. That's separated by two oceans. You see, you see the world map problem here? The U.S. trying to control the spigot in the Middle East, which is at the center of this vast landmass. It knows that area is key because that is the tap over which we control everyone around us. Yeah. I mean, you can see the truth of what we're saying here um, in terms of the motivation of the West and NATO and the U.S. in in doing what it's doing by looking at what has been said repeatedly over the past few years by European countries in the EU, uh, what they've said about Russia and in terms of the energy supplies, what they've repeatedly said, and this is public, I mean, you can look it up, what the EU supposedly wants to do is reduce its dependency on Russian gas. Now, the question is why? 
Russia has lots of gas. Why would Europe want to reduce its dependency on that? What is Russia some kind of monster that's going to manipulate mm-hmm. all of Europe by selling its gas to them? I have a statement from the British Foreign Secretary. In 2007, so before Putin became the pariah that is presented at today, although it is after there were some statements made by certain Westerners that this guy, we can't rely on, we can't trust this guy. Nevertheless, Russia, you know, was doing business. And in 2007, um, British Foreign Secretary made a statement to the effect that we need to engage, in this case, with Iran, i.e. normalize relations with Iran, engage with them, do deals with them, get them on our side. Why? Because this dependency of Europe, Britain didn't have any dependency on Middle Eastern gas, but Europe does. This dependency of Europe on Russian gas is a problem. Why is it a problem? It wasn't spelled out. Right. But it's a problem because uh, for the simple reason that America controls most of Europe, and if most of Europe becomes dependent on this uh, this vital uh, spent on Russia for this vital resource. Then the two are naturally increasingly symbiotically mm-hmm. dependent on each other. Right, and the EU would naturally tend to agree with Russia on particular important International. ideas yep. or, or, or uh, goals and not depend on the US. And it's pretty simple. I mean, if anybody was came here looking for some kind of complicated, involved uh, explanation of why uh, this is happening, it's not very complicated. The U.S. has spent the past more or less 100 years <clears throat> ruling the world and uh, doing whatever it wanted, sucking up resources all over the place, exploiting people and enriching itself at the expense of a lot of other, uh, a lot of other people, a lot of other countries. And it's extremely reluctant to give up that position. And Russia... And as Neil was just saying, if you look at the whole Eurasian landmass, Russia is the biggest country in the world. It's the biggest, by far the biggest country in Eurasia. It has a lot of oil and gas resources, which are vital for every country that's trying to develop. The countries that are developed in, in, industrially and the countries that have been retarded by you know, various Western uh, imperial adventures over the years, they all need oil and gas. Russia is their natural supplier. That puts Russia in a, a dominant position, potentially. America is trying to stop them from becoming, uh, from getting into that position because it doesn't like to lose. America has never lost and it has done what it has spent most of its time militarily and covertly with intelligence agencies over the past hundred years is making sure that every other country is either controlled or kept down so that America can reign supreme. Uh, but it's, you know, Russia has come of age and uh, time has run out on that kind of uh, uh, mafia-type extortion of the rest of the world that the U.S. has been engaging in. I mean, you can only do that for so long until someone comes along and says, you know, not only am I not willing to accept this anymore, but I'm in a a position not to accept it anymore and to uh, make it clear that I mean it and to back up my words with action. Uh, And that's what Russia has done in, in this first step in Syria. It has imposed itself right into the middle of the Middle East and said, no more. Uh, No more false flag attacks, no more uh, proxy armies invading countries, destroying them, killing millions of people. Uh, You're completely ruining the entire kind of uh, social uh, and political environment of all of these countries. You're making it very difficult for Russia to do any of the business that it should naturally do because Russia has all these resources and wants to do business with everybody. And... uh, 
it's time to call time on on that kind of behaviour. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking at a, at a map now where Russia to the north and Iran in the Middle East and Syria form an alliance. Iraq is pretty much in the alliance too. Now look at the map again. You have a continuum from the Mediterranean to Iran of countries with Russia. Saudi Arabia is freaking out, which is why so much chaos has been happening there, which is partially why they've invaded Yemen, because Yemen is having an uprising that will definitely align them with Iran, and therefore the others, and therefore Russia. Yeah, Saudi Arabia will be surrounded effectively. Putin said today, he reaffirmed that we, we Russia has no intention of a ground operation inside Syria. This is airstrikes only. Maybe he's just saying that for now. But I think we can hold him to his word because when he says things, he tends to back it up with actions. And um, I, absent some totally unexplained event or totally out of the ordinary event, I, I can foresee Syria being stabilized sooner or later. But notice that stuff is going down in Turkey <laughs> right away. The Turks, both Saudi Arabia and Turkey, are now faced with a decision. Well, a decision is being forced to a head. Uh, was it just yesterday? Mm-hmm. A massive bomb mm-hmm. went off in Turkey's capital. 128 dead. Turkey's had a few of these incidents. But this is the incidents. worst. This, this is, is the worst one. Right. The, right. It, this is the, big, the biggest, biggest one. terror attack mm-hmm. okay. in Turkey. The Turkish government saying ISIS done it, maybe. But the same, well, the people are to, protesting, saying to be Erdogan's fault. But to be specific, this is this bomb at uh, uh, killed Kurdish people. Two bombs killed killed a Kurdish. Uh, I think it might have been a group of Kurds that demonstrated and protesting. It killed uh, mainly Kurds. Um, and today there are more kind of violent clashes in in Turkey where the people who had come to Kurdish politicians and people who had come to lay reeds at the site of the bombing were being prevented from doing so by the Turkish police. So there's been all sorts of clashes there and people injured today after the bombing. So just uh, in terms of what what the Kurds are, the Kurds are not just some small group of people. There's something like, it's about 20, 15 to 20% of the Turkish population are Kurdish people. That's about... Uh, 15, 16 million people in Turkey are Kurds. There's about six or so in Syria, about six or so, or six or seven or eight in Iraq. Uh-huh. Uh, so those are the three main countries, Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, that all have this Kurdish population. And in Syria and Iraq, they're in the northern part of those countries uh, on the Turkish border, and then it overlaps into the southern part of Turkey that is a kind of historical or, or proposed Kurdistan, uh-huh. a country that would effectively have 30-plus million people. Yeah. All Kurds, their own identity, their own culture that have been there for a long time. Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey historically have all been very hard on the Kurds uh, because they've been clamoring for a chunk of each of those three countries for their own state. Not unusual. Uh, but Turkey appears to have been, historically anyway, have been uh, the country that has cracked down on the hardest. So the question now is when Kurds. 128 of them die in a bombing in Turkey, uh, and then there. And we have to add, we have to say that this comes on the heels of uh, Turkey using the uh, civil war in Syria and ISIS in Iraq and Syria 
as an excuse to bomb mm-hmm. Kurdish um, militia in Iraq. They, the last time they bombed them was just last uh, last last month, September. Turkish planes went in and chased uh, a bunch of uh, Kurds that had apparently uh, attacked some uh, Turkish military men. So the question here is, who's carrying out this bombing and what the point of it is? It's very hard to to tease out the, what's actually going on. There are two possible explanations that I can think of. One is is that Turkey itself. Obviously, Turkey doesn't like the, the Turkish government. Erdogan doesn't like the Kurds. Turkish, you know, intelligence uh, community doesn't like the Kurds. Have always been hard on them. They could easily have planted a bomb or two bombs and kill a bunch of Kurds to try and terrify them and and, and keep down. But the Kurds aren't very. Uh, they're certainly not uh, easily cowed in that respect. Certainly by Turkey because they pretty much hate the Turkish government. Um, uh, one explanation that it was the Turkish government that did this itself. The other narrative that has come out in the media is that it was ISIL, ISIS, whatever you want to call it, that carried out this bombing against the Kurds. Uh, there's a narrative. But if you're so, saying that, you're saying CIA. Exactly, you're saying CIA slash Saudi Arabia. Uh, the the uh, idea there might be that Turkey is seen by the West and its Saudi allies as not being fully on board with their agenda for getting rid of Assad, um, or it may be wavering to some extent. And oh, I message, bet they are. This is a message sent to the Turks to say, listen, you can have a Kurdish uprising problem very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we keep carrying out these bombings, you're going to, you, i.e., we're doing it for you on your behalf, but not on your behalf, but you know, in a false flag kind of a way, we are uh, making it look like you are attacking uh, the Kurdish people, mm-hmm. and you can have a revolution in your hands, and you, Erdogan, may no, no longer be in power. That's the other possible explanation, but it's very difficult to know exactly what's going on in the background there because it's hard. Yeah, would would the Turkish establishment covert over whoever one week before snap elections? By the way, because mm-hmm. they couldn't form a government in the earlier elections this year, carry out such an egregious assault. Maybe. Because, I mean, they've been yeah. bombing Kurds so in Iraq, fast. right? They've been bombing Kurds mm-hmm. in Iraq over the past uh, past year almost. You know, they've been having sporadic kind of bombing campaigns against the Kurds in Iraq. So there's no problem with uh, bombing what they say is a Kurdish militia. militia. Well, but this, um, this one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that this bombing took place at a peace protest, essentially. Right. This was a protest of you know, thousands of people calling for a peaceful solution to the to the Kurdish problem. And so for this to happen, right. at a, essentially a peace protest, I mean, right. that just makes it so much worse. Right. I think in the broadest sense, we can say that, well, we can ask the question, who is interested in destabilizing the Middle East? Mm-hmm. And that's what Putin and there, said. Thereby retaining control of it. Whereas who is coming in to try to stabilize it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right there you have your two sides in quotes. Mm-hmm. Well, and what does this fall into? Right. Well, the problem here is that uh, in terms of a peaceful, um, someone who wouldn't want a peace uh, process or a peaceful solution to the Kurdish problem uh, would be the Saudi Arabia and its uh, its Western masters, uh, because that would, at at the very least, I suppose, if Turkey was to be on board with it, and Syria now in current chaos and Iraq maybe being being you know. Uh, willing to accommodate that kind of a, a peaceful situation. I mean, there's already a more or less semi-autonomous Kurdish region in Iraq. Mm-hmm. The Kurds are very independent in, in Syria and in Turkey. If they were to be combined into a chunk of land across those three three countries into a, 
autonomous region called Kurdistan, there are large oil resources under the feet of the Kurds, particularly in northern Iraq. Mm. So you have a you have a new separate eventually country mm-hmm. that has large oil resources, and who's it going to align with? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, People, it, take a look at that at that section in the Middle East where <laughs> the British and the French, after the First World War, drew these lines. That that shape of a country called Iraq, and its its border there is defined border with Iran, previously Persia. The gerrymandered border of a so-called Turkey, there was no such Turkey before, and of course Syria. Look at where they meet. They all meet more or less at a point. That center point is smack in the middle of what is essentially a natural nation state. If you are going to create nation states in the Middle East, they deliberately, I think, created the situation where all those countries meet at a point that's in the middle of what should have been a Kurdistan, and that that was done deliberately because it, it, it can be this provoked. is not just a recent issue. This has come up over and over and over again, the, the, the Kurdish issue in the Middle East. And it's been used left, yeah. right, and center. You might remember back, oh, Saddam Hussein's gassing the Kurds. Mm. They're a problem, but they have, that's true. He was definitely clamping down on them. But the Kurds, while they had a legitimate stake to freedom, independence, and all that, they were getting support and training. They were going off to Israel in the 60s and 70s for training by Mossad. So you see how easy it is to completely abuse a situation. Yeah, it's called set a, up. a fracture point where you can incite, uh, you know, kind of destabilization tactics to, if things don't go your way in the Middle East. But just getting back to the, uh, the specifics of what Syria, what we can, what we have kind of figured out in terms of what the main point about Syria is we already talked about gas and oil resources and who uh, the countries that own those gas and oil resources, who they're aligned with. That's the major issue. But specifically in terms of Syria, a few years ago, in terms of what I mentioned previously, where uh, America, uh, the, Euro- the European Union started saying we need to reduce our dependency on Russian gas. Well, we asked the question, why? Why would they do that? Russia pl- supplies lots of gas and it's good gas. It works it's at a good price, why would you say uh, we're going to try and not use it and use so much of it anymore uh, when Russia is offering it at a good price? Uh, obviously, that was done at the behest largely of America. They say, Europe, we want you to kind of back away from Russia here because we don't want Russia to gain any influence and any or any wealth and control. So they started looking elsewhere. Um, they're at the time, just a few years ago, it's, um, Russia had planned a new pipeline. It already has a pipeline going from uh, further up in Russia there um, into through the um, Baltic Sea into directly into Germany. They had planned a new pipeline called South Stream, which was going to go through, if you look at your map, going through uh, the Black Sea, under the Black Sea, straight into Bulgaria. This is going to be doubling kind of the, the gas flow uh, from Russia into Europe and doubling, I suppose, the control and the influence that uh, Russia would have over European countries, the European Union. Um, right after the coup in Ukraine early last year, and then Russia's response in taking Crimea, because that coup was had two uh, purposes. One was obviously to install a pathetically compliant 
subservient government in Ukraine that would be aligned with with the, uh, the U.S. And, and Europe, as opposed to the one beforehand that was largely uh, Russian-aligned. That was the first objective. The second objective, which was maybe even more important, was by doing that, they would be able to get this new puppet Ukrainian government to renege on its uh, agreement with Russia to host its Russia's uh, fleet in the Black Sea in Crimea. So Russians saw this coming and they moved very quickly to take Crimea and, as they say, reabsorb it back into the into the Russian Federation, thereby securing the Black Sea fleet that sits at the bottom of Crimea. Um, as soon as that happened, um, within a few months or within a few weeks actually, uh, the European Union cancelled this South Stream pipeline and said, okay, that's not going to happen anymore because Russia is very naughty for taking Crimea. Um, and at the same time, ongoing uh, was a plan, an alternative supply of gas to Europe that would replace this South Stream that they had just uh, cancelled with Russia, which was a pipeline going from, if you look way down in Saudi Arabia, off the coast of Saudi Arabia in the, in the Persian Gulf there, you have this little, um, this little, I don't know what to call it. Uh, blot. This little blot. Uh, I was going to say something more rude there, but this little uh, piece of land called Qatar, uh, they have uh, own uh, part of a major gas field in the Persian Gulf right off the coast of Qatar there uh, that is shared between Iran on the other side and Qatar. So the plan was to exploit that gas and run a pipeline up through Saudi Arabia, through Iraq, through Syria to Turkey. Uh, and then through Turkey over into Bulgaria, replacing South Stream pipe from Russia. Um, when that was proposed uh, several years ago, Syria said no. The Assad government said no. Why? Uh, the Assad government is on record as having said, well, we don't want to do that because that would screw over our allies, Russia, because Russia supplies uh, its gas uh, the gas, gas to Europe. And we don't want to take a part or play a part in supplanting Russian interests in doing that. And within a short period of time, Syria was embroiled in, quote-unquote, civil war mm-hmm. in the form of jihadis from Saudi Arabia and Qatar all flooding into Syria to get rid of the Assad, Assad regime. And Jordan. And jo- well, Because Jordan's in that too. Jordan was, was involved in that, but Jordan also was, seems to have been, uh, have been a staging ground because this happened right around the time uh, just after the NATO bombing of Libya. Mm-hmm. And when all those jihadis that were shunted into Libya to overthrow Gaddafi, along with the NATO uh, bombing campaign, they had nothing to do. So them and their weapons were all taken straight over through Egypt or whatever on the sea over into Jordan and staged in Jordan. And, and at the U.S. base in Qatar itself. Right. From different places, all these different places, they flooded into. And obviously, at the same time, you had then uh, ISIS coming in from Iraq, ISIS being this kind of monstrosity that the uh, that the U.S. Uh, created during the time of their occupation in Iraq uh, in the form of basically a death squad that they put together. Uh, there's a report in The Guardian. I also wrote an article on it. Um, a former U.S. military general, maybe, uh, his name's James Steele. He cut his teeth in South America in the 70s and 80s over uh, organizing death squads and overthrowing governments in South America. In his, you'd think he'd be at home, uh, you know, retired, praying for a happy death at this point. But no, he was brought into Iraq to basically organize what they called a 10,000-strong Shiite death squad that was used to fight against 
uh, the genuine Iraqi resistance. What do uh, they call them? The Brothers of Baghdad or something like that? Brothers of Bullshit. But they, yeah, something like that. They come up with names, you know, left, right, and center. But so they have these 10,000 uh, member death squad organized and run by the U.S. in their complete control of Iraq. They were there for 10 years. They destroyed the place and, and used this 10,000 drunk death squad to, to do the fighting in part for them. And then once Iraq was kind of done and the U.S. figured, okay, you know, Iraq's ours now, the oil is flowing again under control of U.S. corporations. It's again priced in U.S. dollars because back in 2002, Saddam Hussein had said, I'm going to change my pricing of oil to euros. A year later, the country was invaded. Um, so they've got these guys that think they have Iraq under control now, 2007, 2008, 2009. It's, it's winding down. They have it under control, but they've got 10,000 a 10,000 member death squad, what do they do with them? Hey, we can't just let, let these guys go back home, you know what I mean? Because you never know what they'll do there, uh, and it'll be a waste. So uh, let's call them ISIS and set them loose. We'll give them all of the uh, military equipment that we supposedly left the Iraqi army, uh, but because we sabotaged the Iraqi army, basically, uh, in terms of making it completely dysfunctional, uh, we were able to, the, the, this, the, this gang of, of this death squad, uh, Thousands of members of it took a bunch of military equipment from the U.S. military that they left there and just started spreading across Iraq. That was the beginning of ISIS, as you probably remember. And then once they had spread of a bit of an influence around Iraq, they moved into Syria to join in the civil war. Uh, so the problem here was the, as we just mentioned, Syria's refusal to allow an alternative supply of gas to Europe coming from Qatar running through its country. Mm-hmm. Um, Although it's a bit more nuanced than that, as you pointed out in your article, mm-hmm. there was another suggestion. Get this right: for a pipeline coming from the same gas field in the Persian Gulf, but from the Iranian side to go up the Iranian coastline of the Persian Gulf into Iraq and into Syria, and thereby su- supply Europe. Mm-hmm. Right, but that was stalled now because of the Syrian. Um, Russia was fine with that. You see. Well, we don't know if they were fine with it, but the fact that immediately Syria after, was imme- fine with it. Well, immediately, yeah, Syria was fine with it immediately after uh, Syria said no to the Qatar pipeline running through its country into Turkey and over to Europe to to screw over the Russian pipeline. Um, when they said no, they very quickly afterwards signed a deal with Iran and Iraq to run a pipeline from Iran through Iraq to Syria and then maybe into the Med or into Turkey, depending on what they could work out. Mm. But that didn't get very far because of the civil war. So "Quote unquote civil war in Syria." Yeah, but the, yeah, you're, you're, the point that you're, you're making is that if Syria was so unwilling to allow gas to be transported from Qatar to Europe, so as not to piss off uh, its friends, the Russians, and, and deny them uh, uh, their their income, uh, why would it then allow a pipeline from Iran Iraq to go through Syria? Because that would do the same thing to Europe. That would cut off Russian supplies. But the the it that gets back to what I was saying previously, which is that Russia isn't uh, Russia is mainly concerned about uh, the U.S. trying to screw it over in terms of its natural uh, gas supply to its neighbors in favor of other countries who are extremely hostile to Russia and mm-hmm. who are part of this long-term goal of the West to destroy Russia. Russia is would be happy enough to share the wealth from gas supplies to Europe with Iran, Iraq, and Syria because they are... Uh, allies of Russia, and they can together, if necessary, use the influence that they share 
towards the same goal, which would be towards Russia's interests. Mm-hmm. We have uh, uh, Jonathan on the line here. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Hey, how y'all doing? I'm enjoying the discussion so far. Um, I would just point out one more thing about Afghanistan as far as the United States' strategic interests. Um, and, and to me, this points up the, uh, the uh, bankruptcy of the, the strategy of the United States and why it's falling and why it's failing. Um, heroin. Heroin. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The United States uses monies generated from um, the sale of heroin in mass um, for black operations like we see in uh, Syria and places in um, Ukraine and so yep. forth. They do the same. They have a same relationship with uh, a similar relationship with uh, Colombia with cocaine. And, um, and the depravity of it is just really it's just it's stark and um, it's shocking. They know that a, a goodly amount of this heroin is going to end up in the United States. But in their mm-hmm. calculus, um, it's better to have uh, disaffected young people that can't find work. It's better to have them strung out on heroin than become politically active. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the depraved calculus among the elites here. Uh-huh. Um, so, and I would also, um, you know, I think that's important. There's a gentleman named uh, Doug Valentine, I believe his name mm-hmm. is, and he wrote a book, uh, "The Strength of the The Strength of the uh, Pack," and he uh, interviewed a lot of people that were in the DEA for decades. And and um, yes, he's come to the conclusion. He makes a very cogent argument that the United States is is the power player beyond, behind. Uh, the mass distribution of cocaine and heroin. Now, going to um, going into Turkey, I think there's a lot of head fakes going on. Like when Erdogan was caught um, staging a false flag um, operation where he sent his, his uh, operators into Syria to fire mm-hmm. on uh, Turkish territory. And then he, uh, and then to, to stop that information coming out, he shut down Twitter. It was an extremely clumsy move, and mm. uh, he was caught. Red, he was caught red-handed. Um, I think, and this is, I could be totally wrong. Um, I think that this is a head fake right now uh, with respect to the United States on the part of Turkey. Turkey already understands that. Iran's going to come to the fore. Russia's going to help Syria. So there's going to be a regional block of um, Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Lebanon that are a Shiite-dominant region that's going to have the United States and China as backing this this block. And, um, Russia and China. To, yeah, Russia and China. I'm sorry. but um, And that's going to displace the uh, the Saudis. Now, mm-hmm. the Saudis understand what time it is also in that the United States, through banks in uh, Switzerland, I believe, um, robbed the uh, Saudis of much of their gold, just like just outright theft. So mm-hmm. the Saudis have to play along as well. So witness the, uh, the fatwa issued by uh, Saudi clerics last week that uh, we're going to get you, Russia. This is all, in mm-hmm. my opinion, this is head fake, right? So mm-hmm. this this causes the United States to believe that yeah the Saudis are still on our side right when the reality is um, the Saudis know full well that the dollar is going to the petrodollar is going to collapse 
and mm-hmm. the dollar as a the dollar as a global currency is going to be displaced by the renminbi in a pa- platform also backed by gold so when when mm-hmm. uh, when the united states is going to slowly um people are going to lose confidence in the dollar as a, a store of wealth and they're going to shift over to the renminbi and um so the saudis know this too so the saudis are playing along with head fakes now you come to this last couple of days with the uh bomb explosion on a left uh, peace group that also advocate and believe in uh, semi-autonomy and the rights of the PKK, the uh, the, Kurdish, mm-hmm. the, Kurdish, Kurds. the Kurdish population. Yeah. That, in my opinion, could very well have been a, uh, a terrorist operation backed by the United States that mm-hmm. was supposed to send a message to Erdogan and the powers that be that, you know, we will F you up, right? Mm-hmm. And this is just, yeah. this is just I'm just surmising this. So it could be yeah. that Erdogan already is is playing along, but already mm-hmm. knows that um, that the time of the United States they've gone so they've become so cynical and off the tracks that their time is going to fade, and and he's going to be and, and Turkey's going to be on the right side of history vis-a-vis Russia and China. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I would also say that the um, the uh, stirring up the problems in the fall of uh, 2014 um, in Ukraine was a way to lure Russia entrenched and involved in a uh, somewhat of a civil war scenario where then Russia would be – their hands would be tied with respect to dealing with Syria and increasing and bringing this, this, this Shia bloc um, – to the fore, and I think that's what the game plan was. Putin was Putin was prudent enough to see this as a, a strategy on the part of the United States, and um, the goading of Putin, you know, by Obama, and the uh, just totally bankrupt uh, policies vis-a-vis, uh, you know, checking ISIL and so forth. All mm-hmm. of that, it's just it's reached its end point because it, it's just not credible any, anymore. And um, so Putin was smart enough not to become entrenched into Ukraine with his forces. And now um, he uh, he went, and, and, and oh, one more thing. It was interesting, the, the influx of refugees from um, Syria, Libya, okay, where did they come from? They came from Turkey. Now, isn't mm-hmm. that interesting? Now, the release of this, these refugees was coordinated with Russia, because Russia knew full well that once all these refugees start going into Europe, then then would be the proper time to go ahead and get its bases in Syria lined up and get ready for the attack. Because then populations within Europe would be uh, more uh, amendable towards seeing Russia playing a constructive role. Mm-hmm. So we're watching. Mm-hmm. We're watching we're watching the dissolution of the United States hegemony, and um, it's falling. Um, it's falling quickly, and um, they're becoming desperate. Hence the uh, the terrorist attack in Turkey, mm-hmm. and um, they really are back and, into the corner, and they don't have really any 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 options for reversing the situation. So that that's kind of my analysis of it. Now I could be wrong. Erdogan. No, no that sounds totally, about right. Uh, mm-hmm. That's yeah. pretty spot on. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, Excellent I just wanted to interject those. 
I just wanted to inject interject those couple things about like the, the importance of the heroin revenue yeah. for the United States black ops. So anyway, hey, thank Absolutely. y'all. Take care. Bye bye. All right, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. I think we need to make Jonathan a co-host the show. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if, if if that's the quality of analysis that readers have and listeners have, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, what y'all need us here for? Exactly. Huh? Yeah. Well said, Jonathan. Uh, just to supplement what he's saying, assuming that's the right tack, that this bombing in Ankara is the message from the Western structure, maybe specifically Saudi Arabia, whatever, to Turkey. Compare and contrast the ways of sending messages. Mm-hmm. The Russians lock on and tease and fly over mm-hmm. into Turkish territory. That's mm-hmm. the message. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Washington sends a message by blowing up yeah, hundred and twenty peace protest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the way they've always done it, and you know, it's amazing that people, uh, you know, have lived, have had to live with that kind of uh, policy, those kind of brutal tactics for so long, and the whole world has lived with those. There hasn't been one country in this world, I think, that hasn't been on, hasn't been touched directly or indirectly with that kind of brutality and uh, my way, the highway kind of attitude of the, of America over the past, you know, like I said, sixty, seventy years. Um. Yeah, the Afghan, the Afghanistan thing. That we forgot to mention that there's so many things to, to mention about all this. There's, you know, there's overlapping um, goals and ideals, and you, know, you can get there's two for ones and all that kind of stuff going on. Uh, Afghanistan obviously uh, has produced a massive amount of uh, of heroin, uh, opium, and then heroin, eighty um, percent. I'm oh, sorry. There's a there's a I'm reading here a Russian um, the Russian drug bar if you want to call it. Uh, his name Ivanov said that 80% of heroin is produced in Afghanistan and 100% of cocaine is produced in South America. Um, he said that um, this kind of drug production and trafficking will soon be bigger than the world's oil and gas market. So that puts it in perspective mm-hmm. in terms of its cha-ching, cha-ching. It's, it's on parity with oil and gas, let's say. Um, and he said it's already bigger than the global auto industry. He says that many of these drug revenues end up being funneled to criminal organizations and often terrorism. The CIA. So if you're wondering uh, who's paying all of these jihadis and mercenaries and death squads yeah. that are being run, well, uh, part of it at least is coming from the drug trade. But this is nothing new because the U.S. did exactly the same thing in, uh, in Vietnam in the so-called uh, Golden Triangle back in the 70s, they flooded the American market and European markets and elsewhere with uh, heroin and from uh, from Vietnam. They were in Vietnam what, um, to fight the evil commies. No, they were in there for very similar reasons that they're in yeah. uh, Afghanistan and have been in Iraq uh, today. You know, nothing ever changes in that respect. This is what they've yeah. done, always done. Then there's the opium wars in China in the right. 19th century. Well, that goes way back, yeah. Yeah. Um, just a kind of, can I make a side point kind of related to the drugs issue? Um, okay. A hundred percent of cocaine from South America into the U S well, and elsewhere and elsewhere, but a hundred percent in the sense that that's as a direct result of the so-called war on drugs, i.e. the CIA has made that. So yeah, mm-hmm. cool. then there's the Afghanistan for the heroin. Yeah, they have made that. So yeah. And it's flooding into the U S. The other one is um, crystal meth. A hundred percent of that trade, Homegrown. more or less. No, it comes from Mexico. Yeah. Substantially okay, close enough. Yeah. The the guy who is the Godfather, the guy who escaped miraculously, El mm-hmm. Chapo. He, he is a DEA DEA informant. He is U.S. government, yeah. and that is just 
just that has just destroyed the U.S. In addition to all the other uh, drug supplies, another tiny thing, tiny. I say it's tiny, but really it's up there because you, you might you might say you know well marijuana Neil I wouldn't put it in the same class yeah but look the fact of the matter is the United States government clearly Monhai has sanctioned the legalization of ganj marijuana all over the U.S. It's happening. It's state by state it's becoming fine no problem just a report the other day said oregon state is happy with this tax revenues from, mm-hmm. from the sale of medical marijuana it's the same i think it's the same basic calculus at work that johnson pointed out okay we've got a problem with the natives this is the the u.s elites talking about the rest of the population let's just keep them let's just get them stoned mm-hmm. keep the drugs coming no yeah. problem yeah, one, that's the you know, only thing they can resort to. Well, it's not even that they're I'm not like they're forcing on people, but there's a, a symbiosis in, in between the two. Uh, the more America kind of goes downhill into this uh, nihilistic, consumeristic, materialistic society, and and you know robs people of any kind of real uh, satisfying um, kind of lifestyle or or quality of life, um, more and more people are. Interested and willing to, or wanting to uh, find escape to get in whatever way, basically. And so they say, okay, here you go. You know, so they create the uh, the need in that sense indirectly, and then supply the supply the kind of soft drugs to to keep people uh, turned on or turned off, tuned out and dropped out. Um, the uh, just going to say something about when Jonathan mentioned about the Crimea gambit, where they. Uh, where the U.S. and Ukraine stage coup and hope to uh, uh, provoke a reaction from Russia and embroil them in a and civil, war. Them in a civil yeah. war type thing, um, and also you know the 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 provocation for the major provocation I think for Russia in that was losing its Black Sea fleet mm-hmm. because you know that I mean there's been a lot of transport over the past few years between the Black Sea out through the 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 um, the Bosphorus, Bosphorus, right? Uh, I, I passed Turkey and round into the Med uh, to supply Syria with the the things, or to bring the things to Syria that needed they needed to build the airbase. If back in uh, last year, mm-hmm. uh, early last year, Russia had been had lost basically the capability to to move ships from its Black Sea fleet uh, down through the uh, down into the Med and into Syria. That would have been a, a, probably a problem for them. Certainly caused them a problem, you know. So the provocation was there that they were, that was, they were going to lose that ability, lose their historic uh, uh, naval station in, in Crimea. So the U.S. probably figured this would really provoke them to move in in this way, and mm-hmm. look bad, and also in the Ukraine in general. Uh, but it seems that whenever the U.S. tries to throw out this kind of bait for Russia. Uh, what Russia ends up doing is taking the bait, but in the sense that you know, when you throw out a piece of bait, the idea is it's like a worm on a hook. You go for the worm, but you get hooked. But it seems what Russia's been doing is just grabbing the worm off the hook and walking away. Jim, <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much. Well, a couple other things that Jonathan mentioned. Uh, one about the refugee crisis, so Turkey's involvement. Yeah. Uh, so originally I was thinking, and I think, uh, well, originally I was thinking that this was a kind of U.S. maneuver to get Turkey to, to do this, to bring the EU into line. And I think that might still be true. I'm wondering if it was something like uh, the U.S. proposes this 
and then Turkey, you know, being the kind of wishy-washy flip-flopper that it is, just going with the strongest uh, person to either side of them, said to Russia, oh, you know, well, what do you think about this? And Russia says, yeah, sure. Mm. It's like, we can work with that um, because there are all these things that – well, and this goes back to the discussion on timing. There are so many th- uh, so many things that we're just not aware of. So when people – when people like you know have their little armchair analysis and they say, oh, well, Russia should have done this years ago. Well, um, first of all, there are just the obvious signs that we can see pointing towards that bad timing. But then there, there, there are probably just there's so much that we are just unaware of that goes on behind the scenes that factor into the decision making process for when something can or cannot be done. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, this kind of the, the, this, the events that happen that are visible to us. Um, in, the, in these past two months, we've seen the refugee crisis and we've seen um, the the Iran deal and just this confluence of events that seem to to create this. Oh, and the, of course, the rise of ISIS and the, the huge propaganda campaign. All of these came together at this one time that just seemed like the perfect opening. And there's probably so many other things that we're just not aware of that facilitated that went into this decision as well. And so. So yeah, first of all, with the Turkey thing, I'm wondering what's really going on there. What really, you know, Erdogan is thinking, and because I, I think that historically Erdogan and Turkey, at least over the past, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, they've been playing a silly game, a stupid game, yeah. which is trying to play both sides against the middle. Mm-hmm. They figure that if they can, you know, keep the U.S. and the EU on, yeah, we want to be part of the EU, and they've been complaining because there's been a long-term promise uh, from the EU that Turkey would be given membership of the EU, but uh, the EU has always has, has come up with all sorts of reasons why they couldn't, and this has pissed off the Turks for a long time, you know, and they've even said that it's basically a racist uh, problem in the sense that uh, the EU is about white Westerners and Turkey is, is white Christian Westerners. Turkey is a Muslim, not so white kind of country, so you're not allowed to be in the EU. But anyway, um, Turkey has been, you know, trying to, you know, court the EU and certainly America. It's a part of NATO, a joint NATO. It allows America and air bases on its country. At this, but at the same time, it's courting Russia. I mean, Russia supplies a majority of, of gas to Turkey. I mean, there's 70 some million people in Turkey supplies most of the gas. And uh, has recently, not too long ago, struck a deal a few years ago to uh, for Russia to build nuclear power plants in Turkey. So when you look at Turkey, you see them basically mm-hmm. thinking they can do business with everybody and get something from both sides yeah, here. Yeah. But they're going to find out, and I think they're finding out very quickly that you cannot sit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, between two stools basically because you're going to fall on your ass. And they need to pick a side pretty quick. And if they're smart enough, they're going to pick the right side because. All they have to do is if, they, if if what Jonathan said is true there, and this was probably at the instigation, this bombing, two bombing attacks yesterday was probably at the instigation of of the West, you know, and using their Saudi proxy, whatever, whoever did it, you know, it's it's lose a whole Gladio team in Turkey and has been for years. Right. If yeah. they don't, they're going to go the way of Iraq, Libya, and Syria. Yeah, it's not like they don't have enough examples to see what happened. Hello, but Saudi Arabia is in the same boat now. They seem to be in a position right now where they they, kind of, they seems like they're almost they they haven't yet approached Turkey's level of playing both sides. Oh, yeah. But uh, but they can I'm I'm sure they can see what's coming. I mean unless they're just 
totally brain dead. They can see which way the wind is blowing. Well, this is all going wrong for Saudi Arabia because, I mean, it's going wrong for everybody. Everybody who has aligned themselves, if you notice, aligned themselves historically with the West, it's now all going horribly wrong for these countries and they're facing really tough choices. And it's, but it's no brainer the kind of choice they should make. But it'll take them a bit of time to get there. Saudi Arabia, uh, last year, after the whole Ukraine thing, uh, when you know Putin killed my baby and Putin's evil and Russia did this and Russia should be annihilated, and um, Saudi Arabia clearly, uh, at the behest or at the insistence of America, who wants to destroy Russia, like we keep saying, did two things. One thing was they. Uh, increased the output of oil and got their OPEC, Middle Eastern OPEC uh, partners to do the same thing. They all, sorry, in particular, because it has the biggest resources, uh, increased the output of oil to depress the prices. Specifically, depress the price of oil because we flood the market with oil, the price drops. Did this specifically to hurt Russia economically because uh-huh. in that time, uh, the price of oil dropped from over $100 a barrel to $50 a barrel. Russia's getting less than or half of the revenue that it got before. Um, they did that and they followed up very quickly uh, this was mainly the West I think uh, followed up with an attack on the Russian ruble on the currency to mm-hmm. try and depress the currency now in terms of Saudi Arabia it's, a, yeah, it's great for Saudi Arabia to increase output and, and drop the price of oil to hurt Russia because America wants them to but Saudi Arabia uh, they're, uh, all, the, the Saudi House of Saudis gold Ferraris and diamond encrusted uh, Mercedes and stuff all come from the revenue they make from oil. They too make all of their money from oil. Yeah. They have been taking a hit for over a year now. They're facing austerity measures. They will not be able to buy their sixth Ferrari next right. year. Exactly. And it's terrible for a Can you ju- imagine the jump, austerity crisis in, in Saudi Arabia if yeah. you can't get another Ferrari? I mean, whoa. And it's terrible for like a jumped up, you know, pseudo Islamic uh, head chopping state like that to not have your sixth Ferrari made of gold. So, but, but it's true. I mean, it's, we're joking about it, but. It seems that within the last week or so, there have been talk about some kind of a uh, eminence greed behind the throne, which is mm-hmm. basically, you know, <laughs> I mean, well, and you have to understand here, Saudi Arabia, the original, uh, not the original, but the guy who made the deal with uh, the West originally after the First World War mm-hmm. to create Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud, he had like 45 children. Mm-hmm. In, uh, by, you know, by 1940, he had 45 children. Uh, then, you can imagine how many offspring were produced cousins and second cousins there. That's basically the Saudi royal family, and there's thousands of them, mm-hmm. and they're all walking around in these white uh, white blankets, basically, uh, living high in the hog. At home, all... but then in Vegas, they're wearing suits and sunglasses. Right, they're wearing shagging hookers. Or, or, yeah. or, or shagging each other. Um, anyway, they, <laughs> they... Which is more closer to the reality, actually. Um, they, there's this talk of uh, some kind of coup to get rid of uh, the current Saudi king, who is allegedly in the hospital with dementia, right? Right. Now. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, it it sounds like it's been set up for a, a narrative mm-hmm. to explain why they're going to decrease their output and boost the prices, oil prices, because this dementia old king here has <laughs> the mad king. Well, he just lost his marbles, and he's insisting he's insisting <laughs> that we keep the output high. But this is ridiculous because it's been... And they think they're going to fool Washington. And that's going to be... Hilarious. Well, no, they're not. I mean, I mean that'll be an narrative for the world, for the public, right? right. I mean, that's... But uh, what, what's going on there is a kind of a coup or a, a, mm. a mutiny behind the scenes of, uh-huh. of, of other top Saudi royals saying this situation is ridiculous. 
we agreed to increase output to hurt Russia, but we're not going to do it forever. Are you nuts? We're losing money here, you know, hand over fist. It's just we're hemorrhaging money all over the place because there's no reason. I mean, we've halved the price of oil in, in the space of a year, and, and we're the biggest oil producer in the world. We, I mean, we, we sell most oil. This is ridiculous, and it seems to me that this is, if there's a mutiny or a behind-the-scenes, you know, a coup behind-the-scenes in, in Saudi Arabia, what it really is is a coup against uh, Saudi Arabia continuing to follow the dictates of Washington, the insane dictates of, uh, to serve an, the insane policy of doing whatever Russia, uh, Washington can to hurt Russia. I mean, you're not. You just want to hurt this country because it's going, okay, it's going to take your place, but suck it up. You know, your time's come. You, have a, you had a good run at it. You know, you had 100 years of leading the world. Can you not just bow out gracefully? No, apparently not. Uh, that's not, you know, psychos in power don't really, you know, when they're, they're insane, they're literally, uh, it's a sickness, you know, a psychological illness uh, in terms of greed. You know, they're psychologically ill with greed. They want it all. And if we can't have it, nobody can. And we're, we're never going to back down. We will fight to the last and we'll do whatever it takes. And apparently even to the point of exposing ourselves as the exact antithesis of the greatest democracy and freedom-loving, freedom and democracy-spreading country in the world. They're going to expose themselves. They're willing to expose themselves. Maybe not constantly, but that's where they're going, to expose themselves as the exact opposite of that, of the great Satan, as they have been called in the Middle East for so long. Mm-hmm. To expose themselves as that, that is the reality, just to try and maintain their position as we rule the world that forever. There's one more country in the Middle East we didn't discuss. The flea that thinks it's an elephant goes by the name of Israel. What's going to happen here? Does Putin have a plan for Israel? He must have. Israelis are dangerous. Wild card. Mm-hmm. It's a wild card. It was always a wild card. Stuck there in the Middle East, in the middle of a bunch of Arab countries, and say, yeah, we're just going to take your land and you know, kill your people on an ongoing basis for 60 years, and you all just have to suck it up. Of course, everybody else did suck it up because America spent an awful lot of time and effort and military effort in terms of containing any Arab countries around Israel that would uh, try to uh, bring some justice to the situation and lobby for Palestinian rights, and which is, uh, amongst all right-thinking Arabs, is Arab rights in the Middle East. It's clearly very closely tied. There's been a historical grievance against these countries in the Middle East by the West, and the, the West key player, as we keep saying, has been Saudi Arabia and these other Gulf states, which are these tin-pot head-chopping pseudo-Muslim dictators who have invented this kind of Wahhabist uh, kind of uh, version of, 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 of Islam, which is exactly the kind of thing that you see ISIL yeah. and mm-hmm. clerics in Saudi Arabia. Al-Qaeda. Clerics in Saudi Arabia. Apparently this is no myth. They, they literally tell the, the faithful when they come for prayers that the, the earth is flat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These nutters are actually flat, flat earthers. earthers. Yeah, well, there, that says it all. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, Saudi Arabia had, and all the Gulf states were this fifth column in the Middle East that was used to, uh, you know, serve Western uh, interests, which are also, to a certain extent, Israeli interests in the Middle East uh, against a natural, uh, secular, progressive Arab kind of movement that had the interests of those Arab countries in the Middle East. So they've kept them down for so long. Israel has been this, you know, uh, antagonist in the Middle East for so long, uh, 
And obviously, most people know the propaganda around Israel and God give us this land and all that kind of stuff. But Israel, it's important to remember that Israel, kind of like Turkey, but not in the same way, Israel doesn't trust anybody, including America. And you see evidence of it. You've seen evidence of that for over the course of the years that Israel is a paranoid state, uh, whether or not they all, the leaders believe it, but they're this paranoid state that if we don't keep an armed guard 24 7, uh, we're going to be overwhelmed by these Arab hordes who just want to kill us just because we're Jews. Not because we stole their land and have persecuted them for 60 years, but because we're Jews, right? Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. come on, people. I mean, we need some rational rationale here, you know. Um, uh, so the Israel-Palestine problem is very clear, but it's not so easily solved. Mm-hmm. Israel has been creating facts on the ground for quite a long time in the form of swallowing up Palestinian land. And it, it seems pretty clear that their goal is to swallow up all Palestinian land, i.e. push Palestinians into kind of like uh, kind of almost like ghetto camps and take their land and build Israeli settlements on it and put Jews in it. So that de facto, eventually, all of Palestine would be de facto Israel because it's populated with uh, Israeli Jews living in towns on Palestinian land. Um, that's that's a very difficult thing to undo because what is somebody going to do? What's some peace broker in the Middle East going to come in and do? Uh, the only just thing to do is to tell those Israelis to get off the illegally settled land that they're on. But as soon as you do that, it's Holocaust part two. And everybody's terrified of Holocaust Part 2, right? Nobody's going to want to sign up to that one. So it seems like this uh, insoluble problem in the Middle East. But in terms of what Russia is doing, what we see Russia doing, which is shifting the, the allegiance of, one by one, all of these Middle Eastern countries away from the West, away from Washington, and to, effectively, to Russia and in general, Eurasia, that's going to leave Israel kind of without its big brother enforcer. Mm-hmm. And at that point, uh, Israel would really be uh, in threat of annihilation because you would have these all these countries. Now that we've settled all our all of our conflicts that have been provoked by the West for so long, and now we're actually to a certain extent United Arabs. Let's look and, and peace prevails. Let's look at solving this in historic injustice in Palestine. I, yeah, Israel's, but I don't think we should kind of, I don't think that the, as soon as Big Brother goes away, they'll pounce on them. Because when you say annihilation, of course, that's the fear that they project no, is that's what I'm saying. That there, is really, what their what, fear is, is annihilation through integration, through normalization. Right, yeah, that's not what that, the terrifying. Right, not that they would, be, they would be faced with annihilation in the sense of or, you know, Israel, unified Israel, Arab region around right. them. Israel would no longer exist, and a unified Arab region around them would say to them, okay, let's solve this historical injustice in, in Palestine. Israel, let's talk seriously about this, and let's no more bullshit about anti-Semitism and uh, Holocaust too. Let's solve this problem. Of course, Israel has nuclear weapons, and it probably sees that as its ultimate bargaining tool. You cannot do anything we don't want to do because we'll nuke somebody. Um, but I think that brings it as far as we can say it, it's possible that it can go to. What would happen after that, where that kind of pressure would come on Israel to reform and address the injustices, is difficult to 
anticipate or foresee. Because, like we said, Israel is a wild card and it's very difficult to know what they would do. It's very difficult to know what they would do in the context of them no longer having mm-hmm. uh, is a Christians for Israel gang in, in Washington uh, with the power of the U.S. military and, and government behind it. If that was gone and you had a kind of new peace broker like Russia saying, well, you know, in a more rational, level-headed way, this problem has to be solved. Uh-huh. I mean, that has never, obviously America has never genuinely said that to Israel and has never, Israel has never thought that it was ever expected to genuinely address this, mm-hmm. this injustice. But if it did come to that point where it was serious, like where, where the Israelis realized we have to seriously consider, uh, we're being forced to seriously consider the reality of the situation here and justice, what the Israelis would do is yeah. unknown. We, we might have a clue in their response since... Russia's intervention in Syria. There have been two evenings, two nights, where they sent in jets to Gaza. Mm-hmm. They had at least one airstrike last night. Well, yeah. yeah. On the justification that they fired rockets at us, blah, right. blah, blah. Well, they fired one rocket that was taken out by the Iron Dome. Yeah. But the re- so, <laughs> so it didn't hurt anyone. The re- and, and then they launched this, this airstrike that, uh, you know, it's tar- tar- yeah, targeted at, at this Hamas-controlled place that uh, destroys a house with a family and it kills a pregnant woman. This might be their steady reaction to well, increased but the reason carnage in, in the reason Gaza yeah the reason the reason I proposed that that uh, scenario that I just proposed is because I'm imagining that that is what the Israelis in their wisdom may see as coming in in the future a situation where they are forced uh, uh, to seriously look at uh, the, the situation and the injustice in Palestine and, and deal with it in a just way. That's the last thing Israel ever wants to do. So if Israel anticipates that, even as a remote possibility that's going to happen, what I think, based on the fact that they're completely nuts, what they would do now in advance of that happening is create more facts on the ground so that ne- they never have to answer that question. And obviously, it's not a pretty picture the solution for Israel right now is to in some way engineer a situation where the Palestinians are no longer a problem because they're no longer there. Yeah. That's what, if Israel gets spooked and thinks it's ever going to have to deal with the situation reasonably, it'll accelerate the process that it has been ongoing, has been um, pursuing for so long, which is effectively making Palestine no longer a reality. Effectively, uh, wiping out the Palestinians or wiping the Palestinians from the pages of history, the very thing that they accused Iran of wanting to do the Jews. Mm-hmm. That is their intention against the Palestinians, which fits very well because psychopaths, generally speaking, accuse other people of what they themselves intend to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's interesting that these latest, uh, well, the problems in Jerusalem, West Bank, Gaza, have been going on primarily for the last 11 days. The Russian airstrikes have been going on for the last 12 days. Right. So the day after is when the violence essentially starts. But this has been brewing for a while, I mean. And the, it comes from the Israelis saying that, you know, people under 50 can't go worship at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Mm-hmm. And in these 11 days, four Israelis have been killed, apparently, and 21 Palestinians and 
So there's been knife attacks in the streets of Jerusalem and then IDF and police forces shooting, um, you know, shooting and killing the alleged attackers and, you know, anyone else. Uh, there have been just a, a few just atrocious examples of, you know, it's the kind of things that you'd see in the States, well, that you see in the States every day, you know, police killings. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's going on right now. Yeah. Well, they, well, they, they've gone all out. They said a new intifada is brewing. Yeah. Right. But that's an American, that's an Israeli intifada. And it was really engineered into Fada. I mean, people understand that uh, Israel controls 100% pretty much everything that moves in Palestine, including Gaza and the West Bank. I mean, they've had years and years to infiltrate the place with uh, not only, but primarily Palestinians who work for the Israelis. Uh, the thing is, what, Israel, what Israel's policy in Palestine has been, uh, it's fundamentally unjust <clears throat> to, to maintain that state of injustice what these really do is that when in a certain amount of international political pressure or the spotlight is shone on that injustice, what these really do is they inflame the situation. They very often attack themselves or engineer an attack on themselves from Palestinians so they can then turn around, attack Palestinians, uh, gain supposedly this kind of moral high ground because they're fighting terrorism, which allows them to further expand their settlements and they just get on in the downtime, they get on with the process of expanding their settlements on Palestinian territory. That has been the policy for a long time in a nutshell. Um, if, and so that's what they do. They inflame it, then uh, get the moral high ground. We're fighting terrorists. We're being attacked. The Jewish, people are, uh, exi- Jewish people's existence is under threat. The whole world backs down in the face of that. Uh, remember the Holocaust. And then they're able to, for the next period of time, continue expanding. So they up and down, up and down like that. And we've seen that over the past years. They'll periodically have uh, a war against Palestinian people and then continue the settlements. It's possible that uh, at some point, if they see that they're not going to be able to continue that process indefinitely, that on one of those occasions, they will inflame it to the max and set the whole place on fire with a view to getting or solving their quote-unquote Palestinian problem definitively. Uh, people, Like I said, people don't understand that in Israel, just picture the scenario, uh, Palestine is completely infiltrated, controlled and watched by Israel, by the state force of Israel. They kidnap, arrest thousands of Palestinians all, uh, you know, every year. Uh, of those, and they've been doing it for decades, out of those thousands of people that they arrest, they have their pick of any of them to offer uh, a very difficult, or present a very difficult proposition to, to a Palestinian who they've arrested. They say something along the lines of some variation of, you can go to jail for the rest of your life, or you can go back home and work for us. For most people, that's a no-brainer. Back home, working for Israel, uh, spying, whatever, sending information back. What does a Palestinian do? You might think, well, he can just now that he's back home, he can just uh, renege on the deal. Well, no, he'll be arrested again. Well, then he can turn around and seek refuge among the Palestinians. What do you think the response of Hamas or, 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 or any Palestinian group would be to someone coming along saying, I've been working for Israel for a while? That's not an option either. Mm-hmm. Those people are placed in a very difficult position where they can do nothing but continue to work for Israel. And Israel has done this across the board. Not only do they have Palestinians like that, but they have Israelis. Uh, if you ever look at uh, pictures of Israeli soldiers, you see them. And then if you just take a snapshot of an Israeli soldier and then go and look for a picture on Google of a Palestinian and put mm-hmm. them side by side, you say, What's that Palestinian doing in Israeli, Israeli uniform? Because the point here is that there's, there's a lot of Semitic Israelis, Jews, 
who are basically genetically brothers with Palestinians. Those people can and have been, on many occasions, sent into to live or to operate within Palestine and pass as... Palestinians actually have a, a phrase called Mus, uh, Musturabin or something like that, Musturabin, which means uh, someone who looks like a Palestinian, but actually isn't Israeli. And it's so, it's so common that it has come into the... General kind of discourse, they have a phrase for it. There's a video from just yesterday or the day before of one of these clashes on the streets. I think it was in, uh, might have been in the West Bank, I can't remember exactly, but there's a, a group of young Palestinians in altercation with uh, the, either the police or the IDF. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole group of them. And then very quickly, there's a separation in the crowd. And the Palestinians kind of back up. And there's these three or four masked guys that look exactly like the, the guys on the street, but they're right in there with all the uniform guys pounding on mm-hmm. a few of these mm-hmm. people exactly. that were in the street and, you know, taking out their guns and pointing right. them in the, in the backs of, of these guys that they've got on the ground. Of course, it's not, that's not unusual. That no. happens So, yeah, and the other thing is, imagine then a situation where you have all of these settlements in Palestine, uh, illegal Israeli settlements in Palestine. How easy is it for someone like you described, Harrison, working for Israel and an Israeli agent uh, and, and his friend and a car to drive along and shoot up uh, some uh, the houses or kill some Israeli, Israeli settlers? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's so freaking easy. I mean, yeah. if, you, if these people just have, simply have the will, you imagine that situation. Two masked men drive up in a car and shoot uh, a man, a woman and a child Israeli settler. And then flee the scene. Mm-hmm. What are people? Is anybody ever going to think that the people who did that were anything other than Palestinians? Yeah. So that's how easy it is to ignite a, an intifada, let's say, or create the conditions where suddenly you have all-out war again. Yeah. So and it's there for the Israelis to do whenever they want, and they, but they'll only do it in a situation where they feel really that their power, their place, their control over this God-given supposedly land of Israel is threatened. In, in the scenario of a normalization of the, uh, of the Middle East in terms of it becoming a genuinely Arab, <clears throat> progressive Arab uh, nationalist uh, area of the, of the world. In that scenario, Israel is faced with a serious problem in terms of uh, accounting for its historical justice, uh, injustice in Palestine. Uh, and... That's why Israel has always sought to inflame in yeah. uh, violence in the region because yeah. violence and enemies justify Israel's presence. Yeah. The genocide is the card that Israel holds and it may yet play it. Um, before we wrap up here, I want to come back to what we said at the beginning of the show.
Come, you masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls. Here that hide behind discs. I just don't want you to know I can see through your mask. You that never done nothing But build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten all the triggers For the others to fire And then you sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion On the young people's blood Flows out of their bodies And is buried in the mud He's thrown the worst fear That can ever be hurled Fear to bring children Into the world For threatening my baby Unborn and unnamed You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins How much do I know But to talk out of turn You must say that I'm young You must say I'm unlearned But there's the one thing I know I'm younger than you Even Jesus would never forgive what you do Hi I think we were offline. Well, I know we were offline there. Um, I'm hoping everybody can hear us again. Can you hear us? Just give me a heads up if anybody can hear us. Um, Everybody say yo. (laughs) Okay, so everybody can hear us. So Neil was saying before we got cut off there very unceremoniously. um, Yes, Neil, what were you saying? What we're describing here is... A moment in history, profound change. How is this actually going to play out? 
in all of our immediate environments. For the elites in countries all over the world, not just in the West and those more strongly and traditionally aligned with the center of empire, the, the U.S., they have decisions to make right now. But it, the writing's on the wall. Russia has put the flag down and said, basically, the message being, you're either with us or you're against us. For most countries right now, they still have the inertia of what was before. And so nothing will obviously change there. But rapidly, we're going to see more and more signs of change. On a daily basis now, it's coming out so so fast. Just to give you one brief example, yesterday, Japan and Russia agreed to reopen negotiations on a World War II treaty that had been left idle for 70 years. They're basically going to settle the issue of the Kuril Islands, which is disputed between Russia. It was given to Russia by the Allied Powers after World War II. Japan claims as its territory. Anyway, it's been a permanent divisive issue between those two countries. To give you an idea of how alarming this is to the center of empire, the U.S. government could not say something about this, reminding Japan that this was not the right time to be talking to Russia about this issue. That's all they could do, though. You see what I mean? It's gone. Forget it. The very fact that they're discussing this thing is another indicator that that's it. So in this case, I'm suggesting essentially Japan is signaling its alignment with Russia and its neighbors in Eurasia. Obviously, there'll be a lot more twists and turns, but it's basically done, and now it's a matter of watching all the adjustments take place. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is you have a world empire. It's not just going to take this line down. And the manifestations of its reaction, even though, as we're describing, it is in many ways impotent, as it seems to be the case in the Middle East, for Russia to make such a bold move when it's normally so cautious, it never does anything on this sure. We're going to have either deliberate reactions, i.e. consciously carried out acts to try and do whatever it takes to prevent people from seeing this new reality mm-hmm. and agreeing with it. So the, the classic example, is that, uh, it's a safe bet that the Oregon shooting that took place the day after Russian airstrikes began was a deliberate mass shooting. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, the newspapers here in France, for one day only... Local papers. The local paper, not even the, the national yeah. papers, the local paper, for one day only, covered Syria, uh, the Russian airstrikes in Syria. The next day, it was off the pages because of the Oregon shooting. Like, that has any interest, given the bigger things going mm-hmm. on. But you see where I'm going at. It's like, oh, God, do something, do anything. Somebody shoot something, blow something up. There's going to be a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But also, there's going to be a lot of it will be natural or accidental or just one of those things. Mm-hmm. Because when you have a reality change like this, you, you literally, in some literal way, it has to break down what existed before in order to 
realign, to, to reform and to, uh, to fit within the new reality. Uh, what am I getting at here? For example, has anyone noticed the amount of explosions going off? I'm thinking particularly in the U.S., but it's not just there. Obviously in China as well, a lot of explosions. No one has a clue how they're happening. They're putting them down to accidents, gas explosions in houses, oil refineries blowing up, trains derailing left, right, and center. On one day alone, two days ago, I think, uh, a tanker exploded on the New Jersey, on, on a freeway in New Jersey. Within hours, an oil refinery, an oil refinery in Texas exploded, and in Louisiana, <clears throat> sorry, the refinery was in Louisiana, and in Texas. Uh, a third accident within hours, it was a, a depot, a fuel depot, just exploded. They don't understand why. Or, or maybe they do. Maybe it could be a lightning strike. Maybe it could be human error, whatever it is. Well, but, I, I, I found it very interesting that while all this, so as we've just described, all of these gas and oil wars are going on and people are being uh, mm-hmm. you know, killed, uh, there are explosions, literally bombs going off as a result of these oil and gas wars where these powers that be, the psychopaths in power on this planet, are fighting for control over over these resources and therefore over the population. The, the, the planet, in some way or other, appears to be mirroring that by these repeated gas explosions in houses and oil refineries, like you said, exploding and tankers exploding. It's very strange. And just uh, the ground exploding. Right. The woman in... On- on our summer holidays in Rhode Island, at the beach, couldn't be nicer. The ground yeah. just exploded beneath her. Yeah, it couldn't be. It was just a natural gas pocket that just reignited. It couldn't be any more clear in that sense. In terms Sinkholes. Of, in terms of the unit uh, or the the the, not the universe, but the, the the planet itself signaling or responding to what's actually being created or being uh, engineered by the. the the powers that be on this planet, you know, they're, they're basically killing people and blowing people up. They have done since the, for a long time, but particularly since the 9-11 and the war on terror. They've been blowing up and killing people uh, for oil and gas. And the planet, in, in the same time, has been apparently saying, anything you can do, I can do better. Uh, so it's very interesting, the whole thing. And yes, to be watched and people just, you know, just keep your eyes open and... You know, don't be afraid or, you know, there'll be a lot of chaos. A lot of crazy things are going to come down as this empire kind of winds down and, you know, effectively, you know, becomes a, a part of, of history. Um, but it all, it's necessary. And to a certain extent, people should be very happy about it because it certainly is a, a, a big change for the better, although in the creation of anything new, there's always some kind of uh, birthing pains, but and it can get pretty pretty intense, but just realize that it's going somewhere, so uh, keep the faith in that one. We're going to leave you tonight with uh, one more uh, pop culture roundup from our regular Relic. I have no idea what he's going to tell us tonight, but as always, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Take it away, Relic. Salutations, everyone. It's your old friend Relic here, coming to you today from the chilled to the skeleton bone shores of Upper Lake Canada, 
where the weather gets so cold, you could say it would freeze the balls off a brass monkey. Heck, I remember one year back in, in 1922, it was when, when the newspaper boy accidentally stuck his tongue on our flagpole, and he still remains there to this day, all, all covered in snow and drooling like an imbecile. The townsfolk come around once in a while and gather to wish him a happy birthday, although he still has a little trouble swallowing his cake. Our mission today is to pay a, a surreptitious visit to the human zoo, otherwise known as Beverly Hills, and, and gather intel on all the strange and curious celebrity beasts that reside there, like like the exotic Canius Westus Erectus, a dark nocturnal creature known for its discordant guttural throat noises and aggressive predatory gestures when threatened by the medius paparazzicus. Another wild animal often on display at the zoo is, is the Lady Gagadalsis domesticus, known for her outrageously flamboyant plumage and innate ability to scare off her enemies with her shrieking, high-pitched, wailing voice. Ed, who can forget the infamous and possibly now endangered Miley Cyrus Americanus? A small, nimble creature with pale features and an abnormally long tongue, who is known for shedding her skin whenever wildlife photographers come around. Wow, wow, is very nice. That's right, kids. It's time for another splendopulorious edition of Pop Culture Roundup. So, let's see what the Hollywood Electronet has in store for us this week. Tribute Magazine starts us off with the headline that reads, Angelina Jolie joins the fight against ISIS. The Maleficent movie star made this announcement in front of the British Parliament as part of her duties as special envoy for the UN High Commission for Refugees. Being a United Nations special envoy is one of those meaningless titles given to famous people as a public relations stunt in order to make them feel important. Kind of like a Stinky old plumber might call himself a, an executive sanitation engineer, if you catch my drift. Anyways, the uber-beautiful Mrs. Brad Pitt has vowed to call on her martial arts skills and training learned while playing Lara Croft in the Tomb Raider movies to travel to some undisclosed 
sand-filled country full of brown people with shifty eyes, and then she will seek out any person there named Mohammed and give them a swift roundhouse kick to the head. President Barack Obama has promised to give Miss Jolly a medal of valor upon her heroic return for each Muslim orphan that she kidnaps from the clutches of the evil ISIS terrorist network. Yeah, that'll fix them. It'll fix them good. And in other news, everyone's favorite cross-dressing hermaphrodite, Mr. and Mrs. Caitlyn Jenner, gave an interview where she admitted to being worried about ending up behind bars in an all-male prison. You see, the one-time Olympic athlete, and now fabulous, famous reality TV show star, was involved in an automobile accident last February that killed a 69-year-old widow. At the time, Mr. Man-Woman-Gender was cited by the real police for dangerous and reckless driving. And then she was criticized by the fashion police for mixing a plaid skirt with suede boots. Sweet grandmother's spatula! When confronted about the possibility of being found guilty and then being sentenced to an all-male county jail, the famous Caitlin admitted to reporters that she was worried about being surrounded by so many dangerous men. So many tan, sweaty, and muscular, gorgeous Bad boy beefcake criminals. Oh, how does a girl choose? And then she went on to say how she's been practicing having a shower and then discreetly dropping the soap. Boy, that escalated quickly. Moving on now to some music-related news. Vulgar website is reporting that starting next year, record business promoters have, have planned a series of greatest hits concerts at various U.S. venues starring the recently deceased Whitney Houston, who will be appearing on stage as a hologram. You heard me right, kids. A hologram. People can now start shelling out big bucks to see this dead singer being brought back to life in glorious 3D by the virtue of the latest modern technology. But that's not all. Event organizers claim that for a special higher price, they will scan a copy of you, the ticket holder, and project a 3D hologram of your body into the audience. That way you can enjoy the show from the comfort of your own home without even being there. Mr. Spock would be proud. Most illogical. The family of the late I Will Always Love You singer are quite on board with this latest project, saying that they'll gladly continue to prostitute Whitney Houston's image 
in whatever form record executives tell them to, as long as the bucket loads of money keep pouring in. And if this experiment with virtual performance is successful, concert promoters have plans to stage a, an Elvis and Jesus reunion tour scheduled for 2018 with Attila the Hun as an opening act. True story. And lastly, in some blockbuster cinema movie news, the Hollywood Reporter has confirmed that comedic great Mr. Bill Murray will be reprising his role as Dr. Venkman in the much-anticipated reboot of Ghostbusters 3, which now boasts an all-new female cast. We can only hope that the new sequel of this classic film will be as equally awesome as Ghostbusters Part 1 and bears little or no resemblance to that all-time stinker known as Ghostbusters 2. You could accept the fact that this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Well... It looks like we've come to the end of another show for this week, kids. Time for me to call it a day. Tuck on into bed with a good detective novel and fall asleep reading under the blazing northern lights. So until next time, it's your old friend Relic here saying, Always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Relic. Keep your feet on the ground, your eyes on the stars, and your eyes on salt.net. That's Relic there. Thank you very much. Dredging the celebrity world so you don't have to. Thank God. <laughs> We're going to leave it there for this week, folks. We hope you enjoy the show. A special thanks to our callers. Jonathan and Kent, and to our listeners and our chatters. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Until then, take care. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.